0: If you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 81? Psalm 81. Just a reminder the Psalms are what the church would sing, would pray, would worship to. And this Psalm is a prophetic Psalm. In many ways, it calls Israel to worship. And for not worshiping, it calls to their their punishment. And in this psalm, what we see is it begins with a call to celebrate the Lord. For the people that they would gather in unity to worship God together as a people. And for that gathering period of time where Israel is to gather and to worship at this feast, the Lord uses it for an opportunity to actually admonish Israel. So think of that. The people are gathered, they're called to sing to the Lord, and the Lord uses their gathering to admonish them. We see great warnings in this psalm great warnings against apostasy. We see great warnings of destruction for those that would desert the Lord. And all of this is calling for a response from the people of the Lord, which ends with the promise of God's grace, where He promises His blessing. To be upon his people. You'll notice the superscription there to the choir master according to the Gittith of Asaph. What that means is unknown. Many think it's related to gath and as a relation to gath it's a tune that was used when the wine press was trodden. But we don't know. We don't know what that tune was obviously, but it was something that would have been sung As it starts off in the first five verses, you'll hear the psalmist calling the people to gather, and then from verse 6 all the way through verse 16, it's the Lord speaking. It's the Lord addressing the people. So let us hear the word of God. Psalm 81, verse 1. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on the, our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden, your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him. And their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat. And with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This is the word of God and may he bless the reading of it. You notice in those first five verses, it is this call for the people to gather for a feast. To worship God. But then if you look at verse 6, It begins, you see those quotation marks in our English translations, which indicate to us this is God now speaking, and God addressing the people that have gathered. And so we begin with these first five verses, and we could just simply call it this, this is God's call to unity through celebration of a feast. And what were they to do? This call to unity was to be a time of prayer. It was to be a time of praise of the people. You'll notice that they were to sing aloud to God. They were to shout for joy. They were to raise a song, sound the tambourine, the lyre, the harp, blow the trumpet. All of these actions they were to do during this period of worship out of joy to the Lord. You'll notice that this was in verse 3. It says, on our feast day. And so this was a feast. Many commentators try to speculate on which feast this was. In the Jewish calendar, was it the Feast of Tabernacles? And the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrating the Lord's provision for the people in the wilderness. And so they would create little huts and get in them and worship in, or recognize that the Lord had provided for them in the wilderness wanderings. Or it could be the Passover. But we don't know what celebration it was, but it was a feast that was celebrated in which all of the people would come out to worship the Lord together. And I want you to see, not only is the reminder for them to worship, to raise this song, to blow the trumpet, but it was a reminder that it was not about themselves, but about God. In fact, as they gathered to worship, they were there in, in a celebratory manner, but it was to focus them on God, and, and it begins in verse 1 to make this clear. You're singing aloud to God who is our strength, meaning that we are weak, we are dependent, we are needy people. We need God. He is our sustenance. He is the one who upholds us. And that's why we gather. We need that reminder when we do gather to worship, that it is the Lord who is our strength, that It is the Lord in whom we uh, find comfort. And so as they would gather together, they were reminded, it's not about us, but it is about God. You think about how so often people will approach a, a worship service that, that we, didn't, we didn't sing the songs they wanted or didn't sing them how they wanted to, or what have we done? Or I didn't like how the worship service went because of this. Think about what we have done rather than getting and singing songs of joy to the Lord who is our strength. And that's the call of the psalmist here is to praise the Lord, to not focus upon ourselves, but rather focus upon God, our strength. And then further than that, it's the God of Jacob. That is the God that has sovereignly chosen a people for himself. So you see two things. When they gathered, they were reminded that the Lord was their strength, and then they were also reminded that God had sovereignly chosen them. Not for any reason it was in them that God chose them, but because of God's great love, he had chosen Israel to be his people. Now, these directions in here are not only for all of the people, but they're also, you see, the directions for the priests and the Levites. They would be the ones that would blow the trumpet. They would be the ones that would have the musical instruments. And if just as a dating period of this psalm, it would be clear that this is after the time of David because it was David who organized the musicians for the temple worship. And so this is a period of after David's time. It's before the exile, most likely. But it is in this period that we have been looking at in the Psalms where they are under distress. But the feast was a special occasion, whether it was Tabernacle or Passover. And the Tabernacles was most likely the most celebrated feast of the Jews. Even up until the time of Jesus, it was. And so they're together for a special occasion of remembering the Lord. Now we can, we can put ourselves in their shoes in, in some sense for a second here, because we gather in unity in mass on special days, too, don't we? You think of holidays and why we gather at holidays. You think of those type of things where the church comes together to remember what the Lord has done. You think of when we celebrate Christmas to recognize the birth of the Savior, or we celebrate Easter where we recognize the resurrection, or you even think of Thanksgiving in the history of our country where we thank the Lord for his provisions. And so we can, ga- we can understand of these, these gatherings that, that they would do. What should we do in those gatherings? How should we approach those type of things? You Think about how this corrects how often we, we, we misapply our focus on days that we have set aside and said, this is an important day. Let's recognize it. How do we recognize it, though? Do we recognize it as the Lord is our strength, the God of Jacob? How do we recognize these things? And verse four goes on to say that these statutes, these, these feasts are a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. And specifically, this is a, a saying that God has decreed these things. He has ordained these special gatherings that the people of God would gather together to recognize special events that had happened and taken place in God's providence continues in verse 5 on this idea of a decree, he made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. When you look at that that verse, it's very difficult to try to figure out exactly what's being said here. And commentators uh, have about four different common Interpretations of what this means. But I think if we put it together, we can at least get an idea. This is, first of all, everyone would be in agreement, or most everyone would be in agreement. This is introducing God's voice speaking. When it says he made a decree in Joseph, it's speaking of Israel in Egypt before they were in bondage. When he went out over the land of Egypt, I hear a language I had not known. And that is either a reference to the people not being able to speak Egyptian, the Egyptian language. In fact, you remember in Genesis, Joseph and his brothers had to have interpreters because they could not understand the language. And so many commentators make this note about this whole point is that this is actually God condescending into the experience of the Israelites. And then this is a way of him saying I'm 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 with you in your time of struggle. Now that sounds wonderful. I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, make a dogmatic statement that's exactly what it means but it is introducing that God is speaking to his people. And that's how we should understand this. And as he begins to speak about his people, it's going to go back to the reference of Egypt. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. And this is speaking most clearly of the bondage that Israel had experienced in Egypt. And I think it's important just to get a, a grasp of this psalm that we, we hear some of the words. Exodus says in chapter 1, verse 13, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Notice that ruthlessly and the fact that they were enslaved by, other, by the Egyptians They were in bondage. They were mistreated. They were treated harshly. They were treated unfairly. This is a reminder. I I actually removed that burden that you were under. You were not freed, but I freed you. I was the one who did these things. I came and did this for you. Verse 7: In distress you called, and I delivered you. Again, if we, if we just hear the language of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 2. In verse 23 it says during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob God saw the people of Israel and God knew so what do you see here that they they groaned out twice it says that they cried out and that twice it says that they cried but it goes up to the Lord the Lord Lord hears their cry. So they're enslaved, they're treated harshly. God says, "I rescued you from that." They were crying out to the Lord, "Rescue us, rescue us." The Lord says, "I heard your cry, and when you cried out to me, I heard you." He says, "I answered you in the secret place of thunder." What's that speaking of? Speaking of Mount Sinai. I covenanted a people for you. Now think about what happens when God speaks out of Mount Sinai in the thunder, as Moses is preparing to go to Mount, up Mount Sinai, beginning in Exodus 19 all the way through Exodus 24, is called the Book of Covenant. God makes a covenant with his people, setting them apart, giving them a law, and showing them how they may be his treasured possession. Everything here is that God has rescued his people. He says, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. The the waters of Meribah come up a couple of times in Exodus and and in, in Numbers as well. But in Exodus chapter 17, verse seventeen, seven, I want you to hear the, the, what took place at Meribah. It says, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by not saying, is the Lord among us or not? The people said, we are thirsty. They begin to grumble against the Lord and the Lord brought them water as a test, was angry at them. You know, it's important that we know that this testing at Meribah, where the people were thirsty, they wanted water, and they begin to doubt the Lord. What we should recognize in all experiences we face in life, whether we experience the joys of life, we experience tragedies of life, we experience letdowns, setbacks, bumps in the road, whatever it may be. Those are experiences that the Lord brings our way as an opportunity for us to bear fruit in it. And as they, as, as the wilderness generation, time in and time in again, what would happen is they had an opportunity to trust the Lord and they did not trust the Lord. This is what the the summary. I tested you at the waters of Meribah is a summary statement of all of the wilderness wanderings. I took care of you. My grace was upon you. My mercy was upon you. And you were obstinate. You were hard-hearted. Let us be reminded of this is that all experiences we face are an opportunity for us to bear fruit for the Lord. And we don't do that by our own work or our own merit. We do that by his grace and his grace alone. And the Lord says this, then, hear, oh, my people. Here's why I reminded us at the onset of this psalm, is the people of God would sing this. They would sing this history of their own obstinate heart as worship. And so when they get to the words, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, they're singing that to the Lord. You think about maybe not wanting to sing a certain song during the worship service. How about singing this? Where the Lord says, I admonish you. And that word admonish means, it just means to bear witness against. And let me read this admonishment. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. This is what we would say is the Shema. The Shema is that uh, Hebrew word for hear. Hear, hear, O my people, you think of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. And what is it that they are to hear? That the Lord our God is one. The Shema here is, hear, O Israel, there shall be no strange God among you, and you shall not bow down to a foreign God. And notice this in this here, this conditional sentence in verse 8, if you would just but listen to me. If you would just not have foreign gods. Now, it's fascinating, and I just want you to notice this before we get too much into detail of these verses in 8 through 10. Verse 9 is a recounting of the first commandment. Notice what's followed. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open, and So the statement of what God has done. In the Ten Commandments, it actually begins with, I am the Lord who, your God who rescued you and brought you out of the land of wilderness, so you shall not have any other gods. It reverses the order here. It starts with the command, and then God reminds them what he has done for his people. But this is the basic command of Israel, is that they're not to have any other gods. As soon as they were in the wilderness, what did they do? They made foreign gods. They made golden calves. And Aaron said, this is your God that rescued you from Egypt. They took an image to represent the one true living God. It was a recreation of God. It was a God in their own image. We might think this isn't an issue for us today. You know what's interesting about the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, or hear, O people. The Lord our God is one. This is the basic creed of Israel, that God is One. This is the essential doctrine of the Christian faith, that God is one. James, in chapter 2, says this, verse 19, you believe that God is one. That is the basic essence of what who we are as Christians. We serve the triune god one being three persons that is the essence of our faith is the triune god who works all things according to the purpose of his will the essential element of what we have to believe is in our triune god that god is one and three and apart from that there is no faith This is an essential element. So when we gather to worship, do we worship the God of the Bible? Our triune God that is one? We worship a figment of our imagination. Do we worship a Jesus that is not fully, truly human, truly man, and truly God? Or do we worship something of our own imagination? Do we delight in his self revelation with wonderment? How can there be one being, three persons? Do we stand in awe of the fact that God is omniscient, God is omnipresent, God is all of the omnis, he is all wise? Do we stand in awe of our triune God that works all things perfectly according to the counsel of his will? The very, very basic, essential element of who we are as Christians is that we serve the triune God. How often do we think and reflect upon who God is as He has revealed Himself in His Word? Remember what the whole point of the psalm began with is this. It's not about us gathering, but it's about our God. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have the Scripture give us practical application that helps us and leads us through this life. It certainly does. That's why God gives us a law. That's why we have all these instructions on how to live a life that is wise as covenant people of God. But at the end of the day, we find out this repeatedly over and over again that it's really not about us. It's about God. We gather to worship God. This should drive us to sing aloud to God our strength and shout for joy to the God of Jacob. And this basic commandment, there shall be no strange God among you, just simply as this, is, we cannot imagine God in any other form other than God has revealed himself in his infallible word. And when we depart from his word, we move into vanity Now, the motivation here for this obedience, that there shall be no God among you, you shall not bow down to a foreign God, the obedience or the motivation to their obedience is in verse 10, which is grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What false God could do that? Let me ask you here tonight if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, what could rescue you from your sin and set you free from the dominion of sin in your life? Well, what what is it that could give you joy apart from the joy that Christ says he will give to his people? What could possibly fill your heart right now with peace through adversity? other than the very peace that Christ promises when you're in tribulation, as he says. What else can fill our lives with contentment other than Christ? We can try to fill our lives with a bunch of things and collect things and try to uh, become consumed with the dirt of this world, and we just feel empty, don't we? The shininess of new things and the shininess of things in our life, it wears off. It becomes dull. But Christ is an ever-present light in our lives. Christ is always present with his people, filling his people with joy and peace. Listen to what it says, Open your mouth that I might fill it. The Lord is saying, just open your mouth and I will fill you with all that you could ever have. And the people rejected their blessings. The Lord does these things of rescuing them and rescuing us from our sin so that he might bless us. There's nothing lacking in the Lord. In fact, we're told that in Christ are all the riches and treasures of heaven. How foolish we are that we are continually seeking to fill our mouths with just the things of this world, which at the end of the day is just dirt. We have such a consumption with this world rather than finding satisfaction in Christ where all of our needs are met. We get obsessed with the things of the world rather than recognizing and resting in Christ. And as soon as we begin to rest in things of this world, and it doesn't matter what those things are, It can be things of this world that we delight in. It could be people. Whatever it is, if we find our rest in those things, we will be disappointed. But when we find our rest in Christ, Christ never disappoints his people. He goes on for the second admonition, beginning in verse 11. And remember, this is Yahweh speaking. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. And you notice that word, but, it's after all that I did and would do for you, not only what I did, but what I would do, open your mouth and I will fill it, all those things that I will do for you, you rejected it. You rejected it. And I I just noticed the connection of listen to my voice. You did not listen to my voice, and this is going to come up again, but mark that off. You didn't listen to what I said. In other words, you didn't listen to the word of God. So, verse 12, I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Now, what does that mean? Their stubborn hearts means that their hearts were already stubborn, and the Lord just gave them over to it. A stubborn heart is a hard heart. They had a hard heart. And so he just gives them over to it. So when you when you look at the Old Testament and go, "Oh, Israel messed up again. Israel messed up again. Why did they continue to do go through this cycle?" Well, the text tells us, they had a hard heart and the Lord just simply gave that over to them. They had a hard heart. This is why or how we understand many of these passages in Deuteronomy that speak of their heart In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. What's the problem with that? You can't do it. You can't do that yourself. Deuteronomy in 29 and verse 19 says this, One who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, "I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart." At a stubborn heart, Jeremiah addresses this in his temple sermon in Jeremiah chapter seven and verse twenty-four. Where he says this, but they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. If one has a regenerate heart, if one has a new heart that has been given to them by the Lord, it's never called a wicked heart. They had a hard heart. The Lord gives them over. I hope you hear the language of Paul in this. Well, we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 24: therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. You know, we understand from a New Testament perspective about the need for regeneration and a new heart, but we should understand that the New Testament perspective on the heart is the same as the Old Testament perspective on the heart. This is why we need a new heart, which is only realized in the New Covenant, which is why God promises it. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 17, At that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Why is that? Because the Lord will give them a new heart. This is only realized in the new covenant, in which we have a great high priest the Lord Jesus Christ that is our priest that mediates on our behalf. So he gives them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. That is that they follow that which is their inner desires. Now every decision we make is based upon what we desire most at the time. Well, if you have an unregenerate heart you will never desire God. God gives them over to that. In verse 13, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. That word, oh, hang on that for a second. Can you imagine the Lord saying, Oh! It's a wish or a desire. And it expresses in words that we can understand how the impassable God yearns for his people. For God is not affected by his people. God is impassable, but that doesn't mean God doesn't have affections for his people. God doesn't take delight in the destruction of the wicked. That word O oh, is incomprehensible for us. In fact, all of theology could probably be summed up in the word O. Oh. And notice the connection here. Oh, that my people would listen to me and that Israel would walk in my ways. This is the second time the Lord is saying if they would just listen to me. And it's connected to this idea of walk. There's a connection to hearing the Lord's word and walking accordingly to it. We hear the word of the Lord Every Sunday, that we're before God's means of grace of the preaching of the word and the, the singing of hymns and prayer and the reading of scripture and the, seeing the ordinances set out before us. We hear and then we see God's word. Do we listen to it? If we listen to God's word, here's the point. Listening to God word, God's word results in walking according to it. But they would not do that. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. If they would do this, look at verse 14. This is what God reminds them. This is what I would do for you. I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. And this is what they had forfeited. This is what they had gotten rid of. Spurgeon makes this point here. If we depart from God, our inward corruptions are sure to make a rebellion. Satan will assail us the world will worry us doubts will annoy us and through our own fault Solomon's departure from God raised up enemies against him and it will be so with us but if our ways please the Lord he will make even our enemies to be at peace with us that's what Spurgeon says and he's looking at this passage and saying how do we understand this in the New Testament because we are not promised that an army won't destroy us like Israel was. But notice what Spurgeon is saying. That in Christ, the flesh, the world, and Satan, will have no bearing on us. Have no power over us. And how often this is true in our life, when we take our eyes off of the Lord, the flesh Consumes us when we take our eyes off the Lord, how the world takes over. How, when our eyes are off of the Lord, we feel the darts of the evil one, and we don't have our shield of faith that puts out the fiery darts of the evil one. But if we would just put our eyes upon the Lord, we know that He who is in us is stronger than He who is in the world. In verse 15, it speaks of the enemies even becoming friends. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, which means they would submit to the Lord, and their fate would last forever. This is speaking what God would do for Israel so that their enemies would submit and that this would be a perpetual blessing upon Israel. But he would feed you. This is in contrast This is what God will do to his enemies. But for perpetually, this is what God will do for his people. He will feed you with the finest of the wheat. It's literally the fat of the wheat. God will feed you the fat of the wheat. And with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Wonderful words that God would provide even from the rocks for his people. What What a contrast. Honey is sweet and desirable. Rocks are hard and impenetrable. God would, in his mercy, provide the sweetness of honey through the hardness of their afflictions and keep them in a state of that perpetually. How do we understand this? With honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. What is this honey from the rock? Let me, let me quote the pastor of the Horsley Down Church, which later became the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It was pastored by Charles Spurgeon. John Gill said this, The rock, spiritually and mystically, is Christ, the rock of salvation the honey out of the rock, the fullness of grace in him, and the blessings of it, the sure mercies of David, and the precious promises of the everlasting covenant, and the gospel which is sweeter than the honey or the honeycomb, and with these such are filled and satisfied who hearken to Christ and walk in his way. For as the whole of what is here said shows that Israel lost by disobedience, It clearly suggests that such enjoy who hear and obey. I want you to see this promise, honey from the rock, perpetually in Christ. That we will always be satisfied in Christ. We will always be taken care of and well fed in Christ. the, the the most difficult of circumstances can come, but in Christ is honey from the rock. We're called to gather and sing, and when we do it, it's a moment of unity, isn't it? It's a moment for us to call upon the name of the Lord and praise his name. And so as we think about when we gather and we hear the word of the Lord and we're called to walk in his ways, may Christ take center stage, not only in our our songs, but in our hearts. And may Christ be exalted as the honey from the rock to our souls. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that in him we stand complete, we stand perfected, that we are counted as righteous in your sight because of the righteousness of Christ. Oh, Father, what a merciful Savior you gave us in your Son. May we praise him with all of our heart, mind, and soul. May you receive our praise from weakened hearts, from fallible hearts. May you receive those, and we know you do, for those that are in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you would take your hymns of grace.